Hey there, friend. Thank you for listening to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd Fink, and this is an introduction to the introduction of this episode, which I don't normally do, but these aren't normal times, and I have something important to share with you, so I'm hopping back in to tell you that on Tuesdays throughout this pandemic crisis, while people are mostly confined to their homes, we will have virtual Kind Mind gatherings on the Zoom app. Now, Kind Mind gatherings are ordinarily the events where people come together and the talks that I give are recorded. But this will be an opportunity to simulate that and for people anywhere in the world listening to this podcast to join on the app and see the other faces of beautiful like-minded souls in this community of listeners. You can find all the details, including the link to join the meeting on Zoom, on my website, michaeltodfink.com forward slash events, or on my Instagram or Facebook pages at Michael Todd Fink. But again, Tuesdays at 7 p.m. USA Central Standard Time. I hope you're staying safe and I look forward to connecting soon. And now on to the other intro. It just so happens this is next in line for my editing of this show. Now, I recorded this months ago and had very little thought whatsoever about pandemics at the time. But I do think it's relevant. And so I obviously would have spoken much differently if I was delivering this conversation in the middle of our crisis. And so I hope that you can listen with that degree of understanding. And yet I I think there is still something really meaningful in this time when we feel like it's hard not to get trapped into a scarcity mindset. When people think of abundance, they often think of money, and that's really relevant right now as people are worried about money, and rightfully so. But money can be funny, and studies reveal the subtle isolating effect that even the image of cash can have on human behavior. In psychologist Daniel Kahneman's monumental book, Thinking Fast and Slow, he highlights the disconcerting results from different priming experiments. For example, when subjects could see Monopoly money in the background or stacks of cash on a computer screensaver, they took twice as long to ask for help with a problem and also picked up significantly fewer pencils when the experimenter of the study pretended to clumsily drop them, in contrast to those subjects not exposed to that money trigger. More troubling, people were asked to set up two chairs for themselves and another as part of a quote-unquote get acquainted conversation while the researcher leaves the room to retrieve the guest. The money prime subjects place the chairs an average of 15 inches farther apart than the control group. In most cases, money on the mind can promote self-reliance and individualism, but also trigger selfish behavior and disconnection from others. There's nothing inherently bad about money. It's very useful. People sometimes say money is the root of all evil. But that's not actually the complete, I think it's a Bible verse. The love of money or craving for this one type of energy, purchasing power, can become the problem. And now we have some scientific insight as to why that attachment can be socially harmful In the spiritual philosophy of abundance, too much attraction to simply money 
can actually be limiting by narrowing one's idea of how resources may be accessed and generating an overall attitude of lack that leads to operating from a sense of scarcity in life. So in this talk, I try to give guidance for shifting towards abundance and healthy attitudes around money, gifts, and other forms of energy. Simply, again, the ability to do work that can inspire the states of flow and, more importantly, overflow during this time when everyone is actually in the circumstance of lack or scarcity. This message in here, I think, is really relevant because, as you will see, scarcity mindsets can really affect our decision-making, and we're seeing that in the way people are behaving in a panic. And those decisions individually might not be wise, and then collectively they might not be the wisest as well. And so I do think the insights and the science shared in this episode can help guide us back to rational responses. And there's a meditation at the very end that I think will also be helpful that can at least give you a sense of physiological centeredness, activation of the parasympathetic nervous system. I want to share this quote from Lynn Twist in her book, The Soul of Money, but it's it's shared by Brene Brown in her book, Daring Greatly. For me and for many of us, our first waking thought of the day is, I didn't get enough sleep. The next one is, I don't have enough time. Whether true or not, that thought of not enough occurs to us automatically before we even think to question or examine it. We spend most of the hours and the days of our lives hearing, explaining, complaining, or worrying about what we don't have enough of before we even sit up in bed. Before our feet touch the floor, we're already inadequate, already behind, already losing, already lacking something. And by the time we go to bed at night, our minds are racing with a litany of what we didn't get or didn't get done that day. We go to sleep burdened by those thoughts and wake up to that reverie of lack. This internal condition of scarcity, this mindset of scarcity, lives at the very heart of our jealousies, our greed, our prejudice, and our arguments with life. Reminds me of when my brother E would encourage musicians in our band to wake up and take the opportunity to connect with gratitude before anything else, to place each foot onto the floor to arise in your day with the words thank and you. Once, a good friend of mine asked me, if you could only say one thing, what would it be? And I didn't hesitate to say it would be thank you. The last thing I'd like to say is that in the last yoga class I took, before the social distancing requirements, the instructor was talking about the history of cacao ceremonies. And she mentioned that it was probably a currency in Mayan civilization. Chocolate is money. But I'd just like you to think about that for a moment because cacao beans lose a lot of their flavor after a month or so and are no longer good from six months to a year. Can you imagine a currency like that that spoils if you don't use it. So I think the last thing I want to say before 
I invite you into this episode is that what good is any abundance? What good is any gifts? What good is any knowledge? What good is love if it's not given? The great Sufi poet Rumi said, everything in the universe is within you. Ask all from yourself. So I thank you again for all of your support of this podcast and the work that I'm doing. I am here for you as much as I can be. I want to hear from you. I'd like to know how I can be helpful with this podcast and with the other services that you can find on my website, michaeltoddfink.com. And I want you to know that I extend my love and prayers and meditations to everybody listening and to all the people of the world, not just the humans, but the animals, the plants, and the earth herself. And now on to the episode. The etymology of abundance has roots in Latin, abundare, which meant to overflow. I think this is helpful in understanding how to live abundantly. When I think of overflow, I think of a river flooding. So our life is like a river. It starts somewhere and it travels along, and there may be unexpected twists and turns, but our task is to keep nourishing, to keep giving, giving life, giving love wherever we go, no matter if we expect it to be there or not. And so this abundare probably is why the Romans named the goddess of prosperity abundita, or abundantia is another way to pronounce it, I think. You can see her in paintings and images holding a cornucopia which translates to the horn of plenty. It came from some mythical goat. And then she comes in the night to people who pray to her and shakes the horn of plenty and then money or coins and grains come to the people. And so her message is that there's always plenty. But I like that symbol of the cornucopia because it starts in a little point. It's like a seed that spirals out. This spiral itself is also a good symbol because life is, is somewhat, at least the spiritual life, is somewhat like an upward spiral. We're probably familiar with the expression, the downward spiral. Downward spiral is when you find yourself in a cycle that keeps making life worse. So for example, with depression, depression lowers a person's energy. Because their energy is lower, they're less likely to do the things that are meaningful or matter that they draw energy from and so then they have even less energy and as soon as life becomes dark and pointless well then it's a petri dish for the depression to grow. Now it's very easy to fall down in a downward spiral because you just think of gravity it doesn't take any energy or any particular effort to go down <laughs> the stairs but going up the stairs takes some 
special attention. And so we, we need not expect that it happened as quickly as going down, but there's a you know, big reward for going up the stairs. And this circular motion can represent how we keep coming back to patterns or themes in our life. However, we're seeing it from an elevated perspective when we're on the upward spiral. People will come into your life and you want to be mindful of what each connection represents. Maybe this person represents a pattern of people we get involved with. Or, or maybe this person is someone who's helping us go up this spiral. It's good to know the difference between the two. And when you keep coming back to old patterns, what's different now? What's different compared to when I was experiencing that before with, with more time, with more years, with more wisdom? And how can I then take that and integrate it into the present moment? So we're going to talk about how abundance is really about seeing the bigger picture. It's not just about getting what we want or manifesting a lot of money or, or law of attraction, but it's, it's really a state of mind. There's also a Christian saint, Saint Abudantia of Spoleto, Italy. She lived in the 8th century. Not much is known about her life and the miracles associated with her may just be the stuff of legend, but it at least expresses some of the magic of living abundantly in heart and mind. The legend says that all the bells in the town started ringing at the time of her birth. When she was eight years old, she saw a painting of Mother Mary holding the baby Jesus, and he had a golden apple in the hand, and she really wanted to taste that apple. So the story is that Christ reached out with the apple and gave it to her from the painting. And then because she was so grateful for the abundance, she ran out into the snow in the winter in Italy and came back with a huge bouquet of flowers to offer to the painting, even though there was nothing growing at the time. She followed in the footsteps of other saints and visited many holy places, traveled to the Middle East and to Egypt, and lived supposedly for five years as a hermitess in the cave of Saint Onofrius. She would have stayed there, but she got word that her elderly father would like to see her one last time. And so she came back to Italy and took care of her father at the end of his life, and he left her an inheritance. Then she took that money and she served the poor until she died. And then supposedly when she died, all the bells rang again. And then when there was a funeral procession, then all of these flowers started to bloom. It's a beautiful little story, mostly mythological, I would imagine, but it shows the color of somebody whose heart is just open for serving others. When I reflect on my study of Eastern philosophy, there are three Hindu gods that come to mind that represent abundance and prosperity. The first one most of you probably know, especially if you practice yoga or study yoga, Ganesha, the elephant god. He has a big belly, so he's the god of prosperity. He also supposedly presides over the root chakra in the human body, which is at the base of the spine. And that chakra 
supposed to represent abundance as well, because it's the part of us that connects to the earth when we're seated. So chakra means wheel or disc, and it's also the weapon of Krishna in Hindu mythology. That disc is a metaphor for cutting through the knots associated with each stage of evolution that are represented by the different chakras in the human body. So the base is Muladhara. Mula means root, Adhara means support. And the spine that goes up from there is also known in Sanskrit as Merudanda, which meant a staff or a mountain. And so for a mystic, in meditation, going within and perceiving subtle energy in these centers where nerves come together and where there are important organs like the heart and the brain, it's thought that you have to conquer this desire for material wealth. Not that you don't have it or you reject it, it's that you don't get attached to it or tell yourself that you're not going to have what you need because then you live a life full of fear instead of a life full of plenty. And as the aspirant climbs up the spine, it's like climbing up the mountain until you get to the head, which is the cave where Saint Abundantia went, the cave of Onofrius in her case. Inside of the cave is where the brain is, and inside the brain is the pineal gland and so on. And by concentrating in there, the seeker can experience peace and light and maybe have, who knows, different visions and so on. And then the peak is here. The metaphor of having like a star or a cross on the highest point of temples and holy places is to represent the peak of meditation, at least for the mystics, and that's up here. But it, it isn't just concentrating here, it's about conquering all the levels associated with the different chakras in the human body. Anyways, at the base is Ganesha in this folklore. In the mythology of Shiva and his wife Parvati, they had a boy and Shiva went off to do some long meditation and he was gone for like 12 years. In that time, Ganesha started to grow up. When his mother was meditating silently, she asked Ganesha to protect her, to stand watch outside, so he did. It was that time that Shiva returned in the story from his long hiatus, but he didn't know who his father was because he had never met him. So when Shiva came and was wanted to enter his own home, Ganesha wouldn't let him. So then Shiva cut off his head and put an elephant head on instead, which sounds pretty violent, <laughs> but highly metaphorical, I think. Cutting off of his son's head is the symbol of cutting the ego. So Shiva is symbolic of the soul of the human being. So really the story means that somehow through the good grace of the universe, Ganesha earned the vision of his father, but his father in this case is his own soul. And because of that, he can't keep his head. The elephant head, though, has its own symbolism as well. The big ears of the elephant represents listening. Listening to sound within the sounds, or the sound of all sounds. That's a mystical art. 
And it also means in a very practical way, the more we listen, the more we learn, the more humble we'll be. When we talk, we're just saying what we already know, but when we listen, we get to learn something new. The eyes are tiny, which represents keen observation. To really elevate spiritually, you have to watch and observe the mind. This is called meta-attention in modern mindfulness, which means to be aware of what your attention is doing in the present moment, to be attentive of attention, and to catch it when it's lost in thought, when you're being unintentional. And then the long trunk represents energy, slow, longer, deeper breathing pattern. And through breath control, Yogi gains mastery over the life force. That is the symbol of Ganesha. Now, there's also a god of wealth or a god of abundance that lives in the Hindu heaven named Kubera. And there's a story also about when Ganesha and Kubera interacted that's funny. Supposedly, Kubera had pride of his role in heaven as the god of wealth and came to Shiva and Parvati, to the family, to invite them to dinner so that he could treat them to some lavish feast and show off his great wealth. Well, Shiva says, we're too busy for that, but our son will go instead. But he has a big belly, so make sure you have enough food. He's kind of poking at Kubera. Kubera's like, of course there'll be enough food. I can feed him, tell him to bring all his appetite. So Ganesha arrives and this feast is prepared, but he eats everything and says, I'm still hungry. What's the, what's the deal? And then Kubera has nothing left to give. So he eats the table and the utensils and the palace and then the kingdom. And Kubera's like, please stop, stop. Ganesha says, if you don't get me food, I'm going to eat you too. And so he goes to Shiva for protection. He goes back to Shiva and says, your son's eating everything. And Shiva says, here, just give him some rice. Puts a handful of rice in Kubera's hand. By this time, Kubera's lost his pride about having so much. Comes back with just only a handful of rice left to give him. But he gives it with a heart full of love. And so Ganesha takes and says, I feel full. So that's the message of the story is that abundance is an attitude. It's not something that ultimately belongs to the individual. It's part of the natural flow of nature and of life. Then Kubera, having learned this lesson, becomes noble and wise and is honored by holy people and saints. And in the famous epic of India, the Mahabharata, after the war is settled between the two families, the new king, Yudhisthira, is trying to take care of his people during a famine. So he tells his younger brother Bhima, go to the abode of Kubera and ask for rice for our people. So Bhima makes this journey into the dimension where the gods live and approaches Kubera. But when he finds him, he sees him sitting on the ground, separating grains of rice from pebbles and from dirt. So he's like, he's rescuing just one grain at a time. Well, I can't ask him to give us 
what he was supposed to ask was a thousand cartloads of rice. So he says, I can't do it. He goes back to his brother and says, Kubera is like salvaging whatever grains he can. Yudhisthira, the king says, no, that's not true. Go again. Trust me. He'll help us. He's like, all right. He goes back, tells what's going on, and Kubera says, oh yeah, of course. I'll help you. He orders his people to prepare a thousand cartloads of rice, and they start to make their journey back. But there was a storm, and the road turned to mud, and they couldn't pass. So Bhima comes back to Kubera asking for guidance. He says, we can't pass on this road because it's so muddy, our wheels can't turn. And he tells them, then empty out 500 carts of rice onto the road. He was thinking, you're picking grains earlier, now you're telling me to just dump half the load onto the road? He's like, oh yeah, yeah, just empty the rice, that will absorb the mud, and then you'll be able to pass, and I'll send 500 more cards. Tobima is perplexed, and he's like, can you explain to me why the difference? It seemed like you didn't have one grain to spare. And he's like, no, not one grain to waste, but when there's need, not to hold back. So it's also a nice message. And then finally, there's a goddess in Hindu mythology known as Lakshmi, represents prosperity and people in India and throughout that part of Asia pray to her, have images of her, have deities of her in their home or in temples. She has four arms. The four arms represent the four goals of human life. The first one is Dharma. Dharma loosely translates to that which upholds, but it's commonly thought of as religion. So the foundation of life is to have some moral principle, to become a moral person, to have a sense of right and wrong, a sense of duty, also loosely translated to duty. What are we here to do? What is our purpose? The second goal is known as artha. Artha means wealth, success, material prosperity. And sometimes people think that it's not good to have a lot or to have wealth or to have abundance. But we have to take care of our life, we have to take care of our health, we have to take care of our families. And if we do that well, then we can have that sense of overflow. To overflow is what abundance means. And I can't serve if I don't have enough within to give. And then the third is kama. Kama means desires. So we're also here to live out some desires, which is related to karma. One letter difference, karma and kama. Karma is created in this theory by our desires. And in like Buddhist philosophy, you keep coming back until all the desires are fulfilled. Or as the Buddha said, you uproot desire and then it all plays out and you get nirvana. In Hinduism, it's not necessarily called nirvana, it's called moksha. So the fourth goal is liberation. But you kind of have to go through these four stages to get to the peak. However, in a simpler way, you can think of these four offerings from the Divine Mother, Lakshmi, as experiences that we want to cultivate just throughout the course of the day. Forget about the whole life. The day has to include some sense of duty. What, what do we got to do today? We go to work, we earn some money. Why? Because 
it's building towards the other one to maintain our home or to have the things we need to put food on the table and so on. And then we have people we love and we want to do things that bring us joy. And then at the end of the day, we go to repose. But before we fall asleep, we ought to make it a healthy habit to release everything. You think about how people fall asleep. We've talked about it before, but you know, they fall asleep on the couch, in the computer, on the phone, and so on. If we could let the world go with meditation, our dreams could be more peaceful, our sleep could be higher quality. And so that's a mini moksha. Like we're going beyond this world. There comes a point too in the day where nothing else has attraction anymore. You could tell me, I brought some great food, it's downstairs. If I'm in bed and ready to fall asleep, it's like, uh, maybe I'll have it tomorrow. Sleep is all that matters. When you are finally exhausted, it's a metaphor for liberation. Liberation comes to a person who's just finally satiated. And it's like after a full meal at a restaurant, they may say, would you like to see the dessert menu? And maybe you look at it and you can go, that looks good, that looks good. But, nah, we're good. Because you're full. And when you're full, when you're really abundant, there's no more grasping for things. Because there's no need for it. They lose their luster. The power to create infatuation. And that's what liberation is. And so, nothing really changes other than the sense uh, within. That there's a, a wholeness, a completeness, a fulfillment, and a unity. All right, we'll shift from there to the way we think about this now in modern psychology. Researchers are starting to look at this in terms of a mindset. And you might think, well, that's kind of kind of stigmatizing to say Some of these people have abundance mindset, these people don't. Well, I think we all have both abundance mindsets and scarcity mindsets. So the other side of this is scarcity. But the problem is when the scarcity mindset starts to spread or cloud all the areas of our life. And it can start in just one dimension. For instance, if we grew up in a family that had a lot of brothers and sisters, I've heard from other people in my band that they had to get what they could at the dinner table, otherwise that bowl is not going to come around one more time. But it can start to train you to take right away and also to hold on to what you have. We all tend to learn this sense of scarcity as children. We have a toy or we're playing with friends or we're at the park and at some point the little reverie has got to end. And we fight and we push back and it trains us to think that if we don't hold on to this, then we're going to lose it and that nothing else good is going to come. So it's the parent's duty to train the children to have an abundance mindset, to see beyond that moment. Yes, this is fun, but there's more to experience. There's more to build towards and we'll have other experiences like this and they'll be more beautiful and they'll be bigger and they'll be better so that the child doesn't feel like I have to hold on to this toy. I can't pass it over to this kid because it won't come back to me. All right. And so the problem with the scarcity mindset is at least threefold. One, it makes a person more myopic. Two, it lowers IQ. And three, 
makes a person less courteous. So let's look at these for a minute. I'm going to start with cognitive capacity. It's long been thought that IQ is fairly static and that how intelligent a person is is how intelligent they are. But now we're learning that it is actually affected by how much a person has and whether or not there's a sense of poverty. An experiment was created by some researchers at a mall where they took some random subjects and in the sign-up sheet they had to self-report their income. Then they were given a little problem and they're asked to imagine that this is happening to you. Your car needs to go into the shop, it's having problems, and you learn that the repairs are going to cost $3,000. Oh, think about what you would do. Will you pay that now? Will you try to ride it out and see how much life you can get out of the car? And then from there, they go on to administer a basic IQ test. And it turns out that the people who have higher income, that didn't affect their IQ, but the people with lower income, that affected their IQ scores on this test. Depending on whether or not a person could enter into or could be primed into a scarcity mindset, it changed their IQ scores. This had real-world implications in a study in India of sugarcane farmers who enjoy a harvest at one time of the year and have more wealth, and then in the other half of the year, there's more scarcity. They have to go without, they have to be patient and so on, and save, and be more frugal. And they have two separate IQs in those two periods of time when they were administered tests. This is really revolutionary kind of stuff because when we're thinking about the problems of poverty and homelessness, and sometimes I hear some people just keep making bad decision after bad decision. Well, maybe that's because when you're in poverty, it affects your IQ and it's hard to make big decisions or good decisions or wise decisions. I mean, there is higher rate of smoking, there's higher rate of alcohol use, there's higher rate of calorie intake per day among people in the lowest socioeconomic strata. The logic here is that willpower, impulse control, is a battery in the brain. And it will run out if you put people in a paradigm where they have to repeatedly resist. But when we learn that being in a scarcity mindset, even temporarily, will change your IQ. Well, I think that ought to influence how we shape public policy around this. And so then the next one was impulse control. So there was an experiment done that explains some of the IQ results. It was done with asking subjects to memorize a set of numbers. Group A needs to memorize two numbers. Group B has to memorize seven. And then they're asked to do some separate tasks. But at one point in this experiment, they're taken into a room that's filled with cake and fruits. The people that had to remember seven numbers have cake 50% more often than the people that only had to remember two numbers. Now, why did the other people choose fruit? Because that's more in alignment with their big picture thinking. It's not like I just want to have cake every time it's offered to me. I mean, I probably do. But, <laughs> but in my mind, in the best version of myself, I have cake sometimes. And 
then I, you know, tend to have fruits and healthy food, right? But if I had to remember seven numbers, I have less cognitive capacity. And, and so this also affects politeness as well. In that same experiment, the people that only had to remember two numbers could resist temptations to blurt out rude things when put into experiments where they're served something unpleasant or unappetizing. The people that were holding on to seven numbers were much more likely to say, what the hell is this? <laughs> and react and behave poorly. So this is all fascinating stuff to me because we can find ourselves in a scarcity mindset at any moment. It's not just about money. We can feel a sense of scarcity with food, with relationships. When you feel lonely and it's overwhelming, it's hard to see a big picture. I can understand why people will reach for connection because when you're feeling this sense of isolation, we become nearsighted, right? Now, there's nothing wrong about any of that. It's just like when people are hungry, they usually can't think beyond the next meal. So what I've done in my life, in my spiritual training, is practice making things like food and love and connection and companionship, all the things that people can feel a sense of scarcity about, to build a life where it's incidental. I know I'm going to eat because I feel a sense of abundance. But if I'm not going to eat yet, and it's my normal time, I won't go there. I set a boundary for myself. If you train yourself, then you don't enter into a scarcity mindset and you can keep making wise decisions. So obviously, when people are in poverty and it affects cognitive capacity and it affects impulse control, it's easy for people with wealth to criticize people eating junk food, not eating well. A friend of mine was just saying, you know, that makes sense to me because when I work at the homeless shelter, I sometimes see when people come into a little bit of money, like they get a gift or a donation of $100 or $200, they go buy a pair of Nikes instead of, you know, using that wisely. And I'm explaining, it's because day in, day out, you have to resist making a purchase like that, whereas people with wealth don't. So the willpower battery never gets drained. If I want to buy a pair of shoes, yeah, I guess I will. And it, and it maybe doesn't affect me, right? We don't realize that the poor are constantly having to resist that temptation. It's easy to look at that and say, well, that's why. No amount of money is going to help people because they just make bad decisions. If you can't make a, a healthy decision for the bigger picture, then you're, you're stuck. You're trapped. There needs to be responses, compassionate responses, community responses that understand the psychology of it and can build programming and paths to break out of scarcity mindset. And so it's a combination of interventions, I think. There was also an experiment done where subjects are playing a game with tokens and they either start with one or a whole bunch. And as they go through this complicated game, their goal is to end the game with tokens. If you end the game with tokens, you get real money, not monopoly money. You get like a real cash payout. And so the people with a lot of tokens, it's rigged, are going to learn somewhere in the middle of the game, there's no way I'm going to finish this game without tokens. There's a certain lax attitude that comes over them. The people with one token are constantly on the verge of losing 
all the tokens and ending up not getting that payment. So they're struggling to make all these decisions to get through this experiment. And that's not the point of the study. The point of the study is afterwards, they take them into a grocery store and see how it influences their consumer behavior. Those that were primed to feel a sense of scarcity with their tokens end up purchasing differently and valuing the goods in the store differently than the people who were given plenty of tokens. Even though the tokens are totally meaningless, they have no relevance to real life. But the brain is so metaphorical, it ends up spilling over into their real life. The scarcity mindset corresponds to activation in the orbital frontal cortex, or OFC. And that part of the brain is associated with valuation of things and goods. And so it's going to affect that. It's also going to make a person a lot more nearsighted. Abundance mindset is the opposite to that. But there's also less activity for those in scarcity in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. That part of the brain in the front is associated with goal-directed decisions. So when there's less activity there, a person can't make decisions in the present moment or is less likely to make decisions in the present moment that are in their best interest long term. It's all represented in the brain. So abundance mindset and scarcity mindset are real psychological phenomena that we want to be aware of. A good scientific foundation for exploring this further and guiding people, more and more people towards their best life, to thrive. Human flourishing. Thank you. So the question was, can, can you speak more about the scarcity mindset with relationship to time? I am a victim of this one. I can recall many times saying, there's not enough hours in the day. And so that started spiraling into other areas of my life. And my girlfriend at the time was telling me, you have the same hours in the day as Oprah Winfrey and Steve Jobs and Beyonce. <laughs> I would get really... <laughs> but, but then I became self-aware. Why do I keep saying there's not enough hours in the day? And when you think like that, then there's a sense of lack. Now, it's not true that there's not enough time. There's plenty of time when we think of everything as lifetime. Lifetime is abundant. When I turned 27 in India, and I told somebody, and he asked me something like about my first 10,000 days on Earth, because 27 is around 10,000 days. So he was like, what do you feel you bought with the first third or so of your lifetime? Well, I don't really know. And then uh, I started thinking about the next 10,000 days. And if you lived 100 years, you'd get 36,525 days. It's like a, a, a little salary. And if that was a salary, you'd really have to think about budgeting. Right? But we don't think so much in terms of managing sense. Right? And that's what it's like when we think, I don't have enough hours in the day. So the solution here is, again, to think of the big picture, lifetime. One of my English teachers in high school helped me 
come up with a time budget when I was a kid and I came back to this after I caught myself saying there's not enough hours in the day and started to correct that mindset. And there's 168 hours in the week. And so as an artist, in the beginning, I didn't have this thought that I have to quit my job to be a musician. I had a really good friend and he and his family, his parents said, you have one year to make it as a musician. If you can make something of yourself in a year, great. If not, get back into your career path. I said to him, well, then just enjoy this year, you know, <laughs> or just get started with your career. He's like, why? I'm like, because it's not about it all happening in one year. If you don't have an abundance mindset with music, it's just not going to happen. And I would tell this to the other musicians and artists I work with. I'm like, do you want to be good in the show or not? If you don't want to practice anymore, if you don't have enough time for this, then go. And so that they could know what they want. Because if we're going to do this thing with a sense of lack, then it's never going to work. So this is the key with time and abundance. If you keep doing what you love or train yourself to love what you do, then it doesn't even come into question. And a good friend of mine keeps encouraging me to think in terms of 25 years. Keep looking at your time in blocks of 25 years. There may be some unexpected twists and turns, but for the most part, you can reside joyfully in the present moment knowing that you're looking forward and you're building something. There's also cultural influences on this, like the starving artist. I had another friend that had a really good job, and she came to sing with us sometimes on some recordings, and once she saw the band life, all these guys living together and traveling, and so she talks to me about what would be the steps for me to get going with writing my music and sharing my music. I gave her some tips, and she was like, first thing I got to do is get out of that job. I'm like, why? It's a good job. She's like, because I have to give all my time. To I'm like, well, there's 168 hours in a week, <laughs> and your job is 40. Is 128 hours not enough? She's like, well, I got to sleep. Okay, is uh, you know, 80 hours a week not enough? That's still the amount of time of two full-time jobs. I said, well, your 120 hours is filled up and now the 40 hours left at your work is holding you back, that's when you know it's time to let go of the job. Plus, she didn't agree with any of that and just quit the job. Like, a year later, she's so stressed out because she has to figure out how to trade some of the hours to get money again, and then she found herself in this scarcity loop. I don't have enough money, so now I can't do certain things, and it just became a really negative situation for her. If she had just stayed where she was and built from there and never had this sense of scarcity. The whole reason she fell into that trap was because she thought, I don't have enough time. Plenty of time. And I'm 22 years old. I can go without sleep once in a while. Not now, but then, sure, why not? <laughs> so, thank you. Any others? Yes. My family was pretty poor as I grew up. Um, but my dad continuously t reminds me that the happiest and freest he ever was w was when he had the least. Uh, he was in the Navy, he had like a $400 stipend a month, but he was in California with my mom and they had a motorcycle. 
and they had Yosemite and national parks. What more do you need? As long as you're not worried about all the things you don't have. But when there's scarcity like that, well, it guided them towards what was worthwhile. So if we knew we could live forever, well, we would waste our lives then. And because there's the boundary of time that things start to become beautiful and meaningful, which I explain in more detail in the TED Talk. But the benefit, I think, is that it helps us to make the best use of what we have. When it starts to dominate our thinking, then it's like you live in fear. This is also the case with people who get too worried about death. When you live life in fear of when that will be, then you never actually live. We have to feel as though there's enough time for me to create something beautiful and not worry about the lack. I mean, in every era of human history, they lacked what we have today, and yet every civilization produced something beautiful. The only way you can do that is to be mindful of what you do have. We'll come to that. The, the other, only other thing I'll say with scarcity mindset is, if there's studies of using toothpaste, we're very liberal in the first half of the tube, <laughs> and very conservative in the second half. But there's life lessons in all that. And if we don't get to experience what it's like to have been in a scarcity circumstance and a scarcity mindset, we won't really be able to appreciate when we break through and make that shift in our consciousness. Thank you. So she was saying how not to let all the comparisons, which are abundant now with social media, we're constantly inundated with what everyone else has and what they're doing. And when you see a whole highlight reel of this, you can really feel like, whoa, am I the only one that's not living my best life? <laughs> you know? And yeah, it's hard not to be affected by that, no matter how good of an intention you have to be able to just stay focused on what matters to you. And marketing groups want to exploit that. They want large groups of people to be in a scarcity mindset. If you're in an abundant mindset, it doesn't mean you have a ton. It means you have a sense of fullness. It's an attitude. No amount of things is going to get rid of the attitude of lack. Right? So I know wealthy people that are constantly complaining about what they still need. And I know poor people that feel like, oh, so much. Yeah, we have to break out of this as best we can. But I, you know, when you, when you find yourself in that pattern, like I've had massive amounts of debt before, but I never really thought of it like that. And so I, I was able to shift my attitude towards my debt when I had student debt and band debt. I had no problem maxing out credit cards when I was a kid to build a tour. And my brother, same thing. He would go way beyond what the risk that I would be willing to take. You can think of things like that in many different ways. Imagine if at 21 years old, or whenever you finish school and enter into the workforce, your internet provider comes to you and says, all right, would you like to have Wi-Fi in your life? And you're like, yeah, of course I need Wi-Fi. Okay, well, it's gonna be um, $150,000 for 60 years of Wi-Fi. Just sign here and uh, we'll give you that loan and we'll set up a payment plan. We'd be like, oh my God, I'm not sure if I wanna do this. But that's probably... <laughs> But that's probably what we're going to end up paying, right? For, <laughs> you know, it'll probably end up being more than our student loans, right? So, but the point is that we don't, we just think, oh, it's just month to month and I could 
quit anytime, but have you? <laughs> you <know? laughs> I mean, and yet it doesn't burden our mind. Thank you. Good question. How does scarcity thinking affect our ability to know compassion and love? It's very similar. When we're constantly thinking of what we're lacking in terms of affection and kindness and romance and companionship, it puts you on this same treadmill, right? Then we become nearsighted, then we become less polite, which makes it harder to attract friendship and partners, and impulsive. People are more likely to grab for somebody, to hold on to the person that they do have, even if maybe it's not the healthiest dynamic, even if it's a little bit dysfunctional, because there's a sense of scarcity. To break out of this, I'll talk about it more in a second, to break out of this, we have to know that love is within. If I start giving and sharing the love that I have and using the golden rule, if I want friends, let me be more friendly. So I think of all of you as my dear friends and I want to give whatever I can to you. And then, look, then we all become friends and, and you're very kind to me, but it starts with the sense that I have plenty to give to you. It's overflowing. Why should I just keep it for me? But it has to, happens to be more insight than it is money. So I'll give that. And yes, if we don't live that way, we make short-sighted decisions. So it's a combination of treating the very next person as the recipient of your goodness, like this river that's overflowing. So the next person can drink and the next person can drink. I'm not saying to have poor boundaries. I'm saying it could be as simple as a smile. We forget things like that because we're so fixated on how can I solve this poverty in me? Now, then the second part is to make big decisions. If you feel lonely, loneliness will not be solved by grabbing the next person. Loneliness will be solved when we look at our life and say, this is the life I need to build. I need to serve and help and have meaningful work and grow myself and put myself in situations where I'm around people who care about good things and are trying to make the world a better place. That won't happen in one hour, right? But in one hour, I can be on that path. And so that's how you break out. Because in that moment, you're already acting and living and making decisions as if you have it all. They say the, the secret to having it all is believing you already do because you will then live and make the decisions in alignment with that. And we already know this is true now in the brain. Thank you. Good question. So is it possible to flip-flop? Yeah, of course, we flip-flop all day long. Most of us flip towards scarcity when we're hungry. See, I, f I feel hungry. I didn't have dinner. But it's not important right now. Like I said, it'll come when it comes. It, but I've trained my mind for that. I practiced fasting once a week for years so that food would no longer feel like a point of scarcity for me. There's so much food. So much food is wasted. We can live days without food, yet we think if I miss the next meal, everything's gonna... Thank you. That's a very good reflection. And yes, the prefrontal cortex is the last part of the brain to develop. In mysticism, they call the crown of the head, the Sahasrara chakra, the Mount Everest of the body. The Himalayas are the youngest mountain range on the earth. And similarly, the prefrontal cortex at the top is the youngest part 
of the human earth. And the goal is to get up there where it's cool. Cool means you can do clear thinking and see the big picture, see from the mountaintop. But yeah, she's right that because this is the last part to develop, we enter into adulthood with these old patterns. Because as a child, you really do have scarcity. So you do have to hold on, you have to be attached. And it's going to take work, some work, to unpack that as an adult. Otherwise, it will just manifest. We're holding on to something. If I'm holding on, how can I have abundance? My hands are full. And I want all these other things, but I'm not open to it. Because I'm stuck. And that could be from patterns in childhood. And to some extent, we're trained because we're just learning about this as a psychology that we can help guide as parents. We can help our kids keep seeing the bigger picture so that they're not feeling moment to moment that there's just going to be another circumstance where it's going to be scarce resources. My parents did that for me intuitively somehow. I never even knew that we were poor because they never acted like we were poor. Anything we wanted was like, we can, we can do anything. My parents loved nature so much, I spent most of my time outside, and so did my brother. Moved a lot as a kid, but whether we were staying in a friend's basement, or in a tiny apartment, or when we eventually got our first house, there was immediate access to nature. So I had everything you could want being in the woods. And then it just affected my adult life. We can help train people in our sphere of influence by showing that kind of mindset. Yes, go on. So the question is, can I speak to addictions? Well, probably ties into scarcity mindset. So in addiction, somehow a person falls into that pattern where they don't have enough, so instead of being able to operate from an abundance mindset, they make choices that are short-sighted. And by doing that, you fall into a trap where there's nothing really beyond the present moment. This is why mindfulness has to teach present forward. Otherwise, you could justify addiction. I mean, if it's really all about being in the present moment, well, then why not use heroin? Because in this moment, I'll feel as high as can be. The future may be bad, but that's the future, and if you're just fixated on the present. So it has to be future forward. And so part of the healing or the training for people in recovery is to recognize those areas of life where they're operating from lack and therefore struggling to have impulse control. All right, so thank you for your thoughts and reflections and questions. We'll conclude with 10 tips to integrate this more into your life. The first one is decision-making time. Change when you make decisions, especially important decisions. Our brain shifts in and out of abundance and scarcity mindset. It can shift into scarcity just when we're hungry. That's not the time to make a decision about a job, about a relationship, but we do. We fire off texts when we're hungry. And then Afterwards, we have to maybe apologize. I didn't really mean that. I, was, I think I was just hangry. Uh, so change that time. If you can recognize you're in a scarcity mindset, don't make small decisions if you can help it. 
definitely don't make big decisions. I listened to a, a talk once by Dr. Paul Fleischman, and he was saying that before he would have to make a decision, he and his wife would meditate. If it was a small decision, maybe they meditate for 15 minutes, and then they make the decision. If it was a big decision, maybe they meditate for three months or six months. The second one is gratitude. Gratitude helps us to see what we already have. There's a prayer. It's something like, God, help me to desire the things I already have. Which also connects to a verse in the Bible, Matthew 13, 12, says something like, the one who has abundance, more will be given. And to him who lacks, even what he has will be taken away. I remember reading this in Catholic school going, like, what kind of curse is this? <laughs> <laughs> but I do understand that there is some psychology to that. If you have an abundance mindset and you're grateful, well, you're looking at what you have and then you're able to use what you have. When you're constantly focused on what you don't have, you're not able to use the resources that are available to you. As I've said before, whatever you don't have is of no use to you in the present moment. The third one is meditation. These are not steps to abundance. These are tips for abundance. Any of these will help you cultivate an abundance mindset. And some of these, like meditation, could be practiced alone. If you only meditated sincerely, continuously, abundance mindset would come. Because when the thoughts start to dissipate, and you start to see thoughts as they arise, and you feel less identification with them, that is the outcome of long-term meditation. You naturally feel connected to the universe. You feel as though the universe is operating through you. You feel less and less like a separate entity or an ego fighting for what you can get in a world full of scarcity. Four is sleep. If you don't get enough sleep, then you already are operating from some place of scarcity with your time. I don't have enough time to sleep. And it will affect the other decisions which will lead to more lack. Number five is look at the big picture. When you're making decisions, when you're feeling lonely, when you're feeling like you're lacking meaning in a career, in a relationship, in love, in intimacy, don't make a short-sighted decision to solve it. This is how people fall into trouble. And it's understandable. And there's no reason to be harsh with people because anybody, this can happen to anybody. We see it all around us with poverty. It also happens in relationships. So try to lift yourself out. Set a course that will help you have long-term fulfillment. Don't try to solve these problems in the short term. Put yourself on a path towards having it all. Number six, celebrate others. With comparison, it's hard not to sometimes feel like, I wish I had that. To rejoice when other people have success or goodness or love, feel as though it's your own. Because it is. Happiness is within. You already have it inside. But the more you celebrate other people, the more you feel like you have a lot to give, the more you connect with abundance, the less you feel like people are threats to your happiness. If you get into the mindset where this person stands in the way of me being happy, 
that's a scarcity mindset. And you want to be able to catch that by celebrating others more than criticizing others, then you'll start to feel as though everything is there to support you. Every person comes with a lesson for your personal growth, which is the next one. If you keep growing every day, you'll be adding. If tomorrow I can be kinder, connected to abundance, I have more than I had yesterday. So I may not be able to become a millionaire tomorrow, but I could be more forgiving tomorrow. I could be more loving tomorrow. I could be more patient tomorrow. I could have more peace tomorrow if I make and give the time to meditation. Aid is let go. I said this before, but if you hold on, if you hoard things, if you're the type of person that has to keep every little thing stuffed in drawers and closets and basements and garages, and you still feel as though you wish you had more, there's no place to put it. That's not just with things, that's with old ideas. That's with old beliefs, limiting beliefs. If I think I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, what do I think about people who are rich? What do I think about money? Am I embarrassed by money? Am I ashamed about money? Do I think money is bad? We, we said before that there's the saying, money is the root of all evil. The full quote is the love of money, the attachment to money, because it's the idea that only through this little stream could I get the resources that I need, when that's just one of infinite streams of abundance. And then the next one is focus on possibilities. Instead of thinking about why something can't work for you, get inspired by the possibility that it can. Being led by your dreams, individually and collectively, there needs to be a dream that's guiding every relationship. The relationship is alive to the extent that there's a dream that's guiding the couple. People live out their old dreams. Let's get married, let's get a house, let's have kids. You do all that and then people stop dreaming. And then people are wondering, oh, why do I feel unfulfilled all of a sudden? Because you're living on the savings of old dreams. Keep focusing on possibilities. What is possible today? In the, those stories I was telling about rice with Kubera and Ganesha, I remember one other story that my teacher told me about a princess that would sing this song about a handful of puffed rice is all I need to build my own palace. It was the lyrics of the song. And she'd be singing this and her, the king, her father said, stop singing that song. It's silly. And he would say, you know, hard work, Conquering your enemies is how you build a kingdom and a palace. And she kept singing it. And so then one day he says, Here, I don't want you to sing that song anymore. You have the handful of puff rice, so go build your own palace with it. And she took that rice and she went into the forest and she spread it around for the peacocks. They came and they ate. And then when they left, she gathered up the feathers that they shed and she made a fan and she sold it in the market and bought more puffed rice and fed more peacocks and made more fans until she could hire other people to feed the peacocks and make the fans and then she grew a business. Then built a palace and when she showed her father how her business was growing, she said, I did it with a handful of puffed rice. <laughs> See, this is the concept of the cornucopia, a seed becomes a tree. 
it's not intuitive, but we can start to understand it and we can grow our insight around this. And that can also help us break out of scarcity mindsets. Okay, and then the last one is service. Like I said before, abundance isn't just manifesting what we want and having money and things and possessions. Abundance is a state of mind where the universe can channel its resources through us for the good of humanity. And when you make yourself an instrument like that, you'll find that everything is flowing through you. You can love people, you can serve people, and when you lift people up, well then you feel like you have more than you realized you did. And you can start to draw from the well within you. Okay, thank you. We'll conclude with a meditation. Before we do, Carrie, our resident poet, has a, a poem about abundance. Do you mind sharing it? So I've been coming to these with Todd. Thank you, Todd. For yeah. And thank Bob Peel for a very nice introduction. That thank was, you, Bob. That's good, too. I've been coming to these since pretty much from the beginning and uh, always walk away with a tremendous a lot of, a lot of amount of insight, and I really appreciate them. And um, often I am inspired sort of spontaneously to write a poem based on Todd's uh, talk, and usually they are spontaneous. I'm kind of writing as I'm listening, and sometimes I hit the mark and sometimes I don't. <laughs> Today, I took a few minutes beforehand, so this one I'm cheating a little bit because I did spend a little bit of time today, and I read a se several articles on the philosophy of abundance and put some thoughts down here, and I was just hoping that they mirrored or reflected in large part what you said today, and, and, and there's a lot of obviously a lot of overlap. So cool. um, instead of your analogy of a river, I kind of went with a road or a path yeah. kind of thing. But, Beautiful. And I call it on roads. I'm just a traveler on roads and paths diverse. One way paved in scarcity. One way overflows. And I can choose the course I trek. Good fortune can be mine. Yes, I can choose the course I trek and write my storyline. One path is pedestrian, leads to life not fully lived. Everywhere, dead ends and moments lost. One path leads to life in bloom, to happiness, is generous, resplendent with the guilt of hope embossed. And I can have it all, because I've always had it all. Believing that I do is my first step. My mind and eyes awake hold forth in vast imaginings. Nothing narrow in my chosen path, but all-encompassing. There is plenty on my road, much love and possibility. No limits to the yield. A seed becomes a tree. And light, it shines on me. My chosen path is luminous, permitting me to full embrace the changes come my way. Despite the many challenges, I hold the tools to navigate. I learn, I act from strength. I weather every storm along the road. And I can have it all because I've always had it all. Believing that I do is my next step. Though every path in life holds darkness and redundancy, there is a path to better things if one lives life abundantly. 
and you can have it all because you've always had it all. Believe it, because you do. Now take the step. Thank you. We'll conclude with just a minute or two of meditation. Please sit straight in your seat. I invite you to close your eyes if you feel comfortable to do so. Let the tiny facial muscles around your eyes relax. And bring your awareness to your breath. Without changing anything, begin to notice what it feels like to be breathing. With each inhalation, notice the sense of fullness. With each exhalation, feel the sense of compassion. Each exhalation can connect us with abundance also because it's the overflow of the breath. As you breathe and watch, Realize where this abundance is coming from. The breath is everywhere and it is the source of our life. It's free and it's given. Learn to love your every breath. And you can slowly resume your normal awareness. Before you open your eyes, try to remember that this inner peace is always with you. To fulfill your activities from that space, and to carry that gift to others.